Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England and to a new world. What you are listening to now is a new strand within the History of England called The History of England at a Gallop, Dawn of the Stuart Age. Now gentle listeners, the point of all this is that I have had a new idea because I've been getting feedback and although my grandmother never actually told me to never apologise and never explain, although I have claimed that she did, I have made the mistake of indeed listening to some of the comments and trying to take some action. People have said they're getting a bit lost in the detail of the core series and lost in the blizzard. Others are saying, can we get on with the gory bits where people kill each other, please? I want to go faster. And still more are saying, what's with all these names? Can't be doing with them all. Can't get them straight in my head. So this is my suggested solution. I am going to experiment with a parallel series to the core one to be called The History of England at a Gallop. The idea is that in these episodes, I will cover the ground more quickly and in less detail. So, for example, in the core series, I have already covered James I in 22 episodes. I will now create three episodes which will cover that same ground. Broadly, 1603 to 1625. Now, you can use these episodes at a gallop in a number of ways, I might suggest. If you want to go faster, then just listen to these. They'll give you the main political trends and events. I'll reference the more detailed episodes as we go so that you can dig into any particular topics that interest you. Or, secondly, you can use at a gallop 
as a framework. Get the main events before you listen to all the core episodes so you can navigate the detail more easily. But remember, there will be plot spoilers. Or finally, you could listen to the core episodes first and then go back to At A Gallop to check that you got the main points. The world, ladies and gentlemen, will be your lobster. However, I have many worries because I am by nature a panicker and let me open my soul to you. I have built a life on panicking hard and panicking early. I consider it my superpower. My film hero is Woody on Toy Story at the point when Buzz says, this is no time to panic, and Woody responds, this is the perfect time to panic. It is always a good time to panic. Remember that. So, things that worry me are that the story will not be as good in these at a gallop ones because the excitement, it seems to me, comes from the detail and the drama. But look, who dares wins? Fortune favours the bold. It is time to be bold. However, I would like your feedback, please. You can comment on the website post at thehistoryofengland.com or in the Facebook group or just email me at david54031 at gmail.com. If it works and finds your favour, I'll try to keep going into the future. So I'll produce these three at a gallops over the next couple of months, once a month, because at the moment I'm doing three core episodes a month so they can go in the empty fourth week. Once I've done... <laughs> once I've done James first, I would like to take stock then, see what feedback I get, and decide whether I go on or not. So do remember to get back to me if you've listened to this. So in this at a Gallup episode, we're going to look at the start of Stuart rule in the northern archipelago of Scotland, Ireland, Wales and England. However, as we stand in the mansion of many rooms that is English history, our foot poised, trembling on the threshold that takes us from the room of the Tudors to the room of the Stuarts. It is as well to set the scene, to give you context, because no man is an island, nor is England, as it happens, nor even is the North Atlantic archipelago an island in cultural, political and diplomatic terms. We have always been part of Europe. Other European countries have shaped us. We have shaped Europe to boot. So let us talk about Europe first. And you can find the detail of the first half of this episode in core episodes 322 to 324a. After I've done that, I'll get James on the throne and cover episodes 325 to 328 exclusive and bring us up to 1605 and the gunpowder plot. The 17th century in Europe, I suppose, might be most signally marked by the continuing Renaissance, the Reformation and the continuing struggle for mastery between Imperial and Spanish Habsburgs and the French Valois. Of the Renaissance, I deeply regret that I will be saying almost nothing in this episode, but you might like to hear about Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre, and if you do, then there are three episodes, 344 to 346, where I talk about that. You can go there. And I talk a titchy bit about the start of the scientific revolution in episode 322. But let us talk now about the Reformation. The first phase of the religious wars and debates were traditionally brought to a close by the Treaty of Augsburg in 1555 on the principle that while religious toleration is a dreadful idea, we need to stop killing each other and each prince now may choose the religion of their own country. Cuius regio, aeus religio. So, it resolved nothing, with the possible exception of a Dutch Republic, where a more genuine toleration does begin to appear. It just put things on hold. 
The spread of Protestantism for a while seems absolutely unstoppable, despite the reaffirmation of Catholicism at the Council of Trent in 1564. But actually, around 1583, a German territory for the first time fought off an attempt to be converted to Protestantism, and the tide begins to turn somewhat. Effectively, though, what happens in the 16th century is that the confessional lines of Europe are drawn a lot more clearly. A new Protestant creed appears, Calvinism, alongside Lutheranism, and Catholicism is more firmly defined at the Council of Trent. So all of this means, sadly, that there are fewer grey areas. It becomes harder to live and let live with a bit of slightly dodgy doctrine to smooth over the differences. It actually makes the war harder and more brutal. Now, another couple of features of the Reformation in Western Europe that are particularly important for the 17th century story. One is the legacy of the French religious wars, which had racked France from 1562, only coming to some sort of truce, shall we call it, in 1598 after Henry IV, the Protestant leader, had converted to Catholicism, having won the throne, because Paris, he said, is worth a mass, and he's got a point. And he assured then security for the country's one million Calvinists through the Edict of Nantes. Yet, the divisions essentially remained, though in aspic, especially as Henry's successor, Louis III, and his chief advisor, Cardinal Richelieu, try to unwind some of the problems of this state within a state of the Huguenots and assert the central power of the monarchy, of which a bit more when we talk about absolutism. The English will become fixated by the fate of their co-religionists in France, the Huguenots as they're called, particularly as Louis and Richelieu try to break the power of the Huguenot stronghold at La Rochelle on the west coast. We're going to hear quite a bit about that. Another thing you need to hold on to is that the Habsburgs remain staunchly Catholic and champions of the papacy. There are two branches of Habsburg, as it happens at this time, the Spanish half, within which lies the Low Countries, Spain and all the overseas colonies, and the Holy Roman Empire, the imperial bit centred on Vienna and Germany. Now, both these empires have different focuses. So the empire, for example, is more than a little distracted by the threat from the East and the Ottoman Turks. But the empire and the Spanish empire remain very conscious of their shared lineage and combine in being the shock troops of the Tridentine Catholic Church. For Spain, their overseas possessions generate enormous wealth, but also enormous commitments and expense. And the big one, the conflict which drains away their lifeblood and will effectively end their superior status as Europe's leading power before the mid-17th century, is the continuing conflict in the Low Countries. The Eighty Years' War, the long struggle for independence by the Dutch Republic between 1568 and 1648, sucks up Spanish goals, leaves them exhausted. This conflict is also of constant interest to the English, who get involved both officially under Elizabeth and privately as citizens go and do their bit for the Protestant Church. Where were you during the Reformation, Daddy? Sort of thing. By 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia, Spain had held on to the southern part of the Low Countries, eventually what was to become Belgium, but was finally forced to recognise the independence of the Dutch Republic, who then were to continue to enjoy what became later known as their Golden Age. All the religious controversy resulted in the catastrophic conflict known as the Thirty Years' War. 
Now, I think it is fashionable to poo-poo the idea that this is a religious war, and which is a fair point, because it is as much about other things as it is for religion. The Dutch struggle for independence. The Habsburgs trying and failing to assert centralised control over the German princes in the empire. And a continuation of the good old traditional struggle for dominance between Valois and Habsburgs. So, when it seems that the Habsburgs are sweeping all before them in 1635, the Catholic French monarchy intervenes on behalf of the Protestant German princes in Sweden. Now, you can hear more about the Thirty Years' War in episode 324A with Zach Tomley and myself having a chat about the brutal death of millions of Germans. So, let me just note a few things. Although we recognise it was not simply about religion, for many at the time, it was absolutely very much about religion. Tens of thousands of ordinary people go and fight to do their bit. English, Scotch and Welsh for Protestant forces, the Scots in particular, and many thousands of Irish go to the wars too, principally for the Spanish. What they see there, though, horrifies most people in Britain and Ireland, especially events such as St Bartholomew's Day's Massacre, where thousands of Protestants are butchered in France. They both fear what religious war can bring and feel slightly smug that it hasn't happened here. And you know what? They say... Smugness goes before a fall. Another impact I should briefly mention is a wave of witch crazes. Now, there are lots of reasons for witch crazes, of which one, but not the only one I need to stress, is rampant misogyny. I don't intend to go into all those reasons here, though I do have a discussion in episode 323, but it is notable that witch crazes tend to coincide with periods of great instability and the breakdown of the normal forces of public law and order. And that makes a big contribution in Germany during the Thirty Years' War, where crazes are particularly virulent, and in Scotland. And indeed England also has the odd upsurge, notably in 1644, during the English Revolution. But maybe the biggest story about the Thirty Years' War is that the continuation of warfare is part of the military revolution, which has far-reaching consequences for European and indeed for world history. Constant warfare demands a lot of money, and it gets more and more expensive as technology grows with the use of gunpowder and massive great big walls for, for fortified towns. So private citizens, however overmighty they might be, really can't hack it anymore. Warfare becomes the preserve of the state, and to compete with each other, states need to organise. They need to tax the living daylights out of their citizens. They need to strictly govern and organise them. They need to get that population working behind what is becoming a national effort. Not just the pastime of warlords and kings as it used to be, looking to fill a lazy Sunday afternoon with a bit of light pillaging. It is one of the reasons for the growth and definition of the nation-state, and is one of the reasons for the growth of absolutism. In France, in particular, it was very quickly decided that really it was no good asking the myriad of provincial estates if they wouldn't mind pretty please giving the king a few coins so he can go and conquer northern Italy. So those estates are no longer called and they no longer meet, and taxation is just levied using prerogative central taxes like the gabel, the salt tax. The power of the king is declared to be absolute, most famously later in the century under Louis XIV, of course, as Je suis le loi, but it is earlier under Richelieu that France really centralises. It's worth noting, not all the states of Europe take the centralising absolutist approach. Look at Switzerland, for example. 
but most of the big boys and girls do. France, Austria, Spain. From over the channel to the Stuart kings, he looks mighty attractive, of which more later. That's all I'm going to say about the growth of nascent states. There's more in 323 and a survey of other nations and their histories, but I think we've done enough for now. So, to summarise, constant warfare and destruction, religious strife with confessional lines now strictly drawn with little space of flexibility, the rise of the centralised absolutist nation-state. This summarisation business is hard, really hard. So much said, so much left unsaid. But... Never mind, let us cross the oceans back to home. But not to England. First of all, to Scotland. Because as is probably emblazoned on your heart, in 1603, off to heaven flew Elizabeth's spirit free. She croaked, essentially. Clogs were royally popped. And the heir was her cousin, James Stuart VI of Scotland. Jimmy Six and One has what I believe he might call an interesting life. Born at the age of zero in 1566, as soon as he became aware, he would have spotted the absence of his mother, because Mary, called Queen of Scots by the English so as to differentiate her from all the other Marys who were legion, was incarcerated in an English gilded cage. I cannot, of course, go into Jimmy's Scottish careering in any great depth, but he'd be 37 by the time he arrived in the land of Lardy Cake and the Free, and so come with some attitudes already hardwired in. He had been tutored rather harshly by a Scottish academic of European renown, George Buchanan. George was a foremost exponent of the idea that kingship was a contract. If the ruler had got the wrong religion, then he could be removed by the people. George had beaten his young charge in teaching him, and James would have nightmares about that until his dying day. And that might partly be the reason why James appeared to have reacted very strongly against Buchanan's teaching on the contractual kingship thing. In 1599, therefore, James had written a book for his son and heir, Henry. It was called Basilican Doran, a royal gift, and it's sort of a manual for kinging. In super, super summary, kings are appointed by God and that was that. Don't listen to people like George, just listen to your conscience, because that's God speaking. Now, fair dues, kings had a responsibility to rule well, but if it turned out they were in fact hideous smelly tyrants with a passion for milk and alcohol, then as a subject, all you could do is lower your head, grin, bear it, and hope it would all be over soon. James was a very clever man, and the story of his reign is that in most things he knew where the line was, and that stepping over it, even if you did have the green light from your maker, was not sensible always. His son, not Henry, the other one, you know, the martyr Charles, his son would not possess that innate good sense. And there will be trouble as a result. But anyway, James is a clever chap. And he's something of a Renaissance man. He had the good sense to detest the new habit of smoking, something I never had the good sense to detest, sadly for my lungs. He wrote a book on witchcraft, and he wrote poems, some of which Jenny Wormold thinks aren't half bad. And she should know she has the mind like a bacon slicer that would put Miss Marple to shame. Jimmy, though, has been the victim of a hatchet job by one of his haters, one Anthony Weldon, who wrote things like him being the wisest fool in Christendom, having a tongue too big for his mouth so that he slobbered, and that he kept fiddling with his piece of cod. The trouble with such mud is that A, it sticks, B, it's fun, but C, 
it ain't necessarily so. James came to England, very experienced at kinging, as, as I say, and he had a good CV. He'd had a terrible time as a young un being kicked around by the nobles who had kicked his mum out of Scotland, but had very convincingly re-established the authority and reputation of the monarchy in Scotland, and he played that traditional role of a successful Scottish monarch as a fair arbiter who sat above faction. He also married very well, namely one Anne of Denmark. So pleased was James with such a prestigious match that he went and picked Anne up and brought her home himself, which was very gallant of him. And reportedly on meeting her, he, and I quote, kissed her in the Scottish fashion in spite of her protests. I'm hoping that wasn't what used to be known as the Glasgow kiss. Anne of Denmark would play a major role in advancing the prestige of the Scottish monarchy and indeed the English monarchy. She was of royal blood and thoroughly cultured, leading a court renowned for its masks and its music. She and Jim got on tolerably well, although later they began to get quite distant as James focused on his young men. Anne and James also, though, had seven children, which had not previously been much of a talent in the Scottish royal house, much given to dodgy minorities. If you want to know more about that, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and become a member, and there you'll find a history of Scotland. James's attitude to the nobility is therefore quite interesting. You'd think that he'd be a bit of ginnum, and he'd come down hard on any sign of backchat, but actually the lineage and status of his nobility was very important to him, and he tried hard to support them, since many Scottish nobles struggled with debt. James was therefore a very generous man and more than a bit financially incontinent, and so he shelled out money to his nobles and his chumps with gay abandon, which would cause problems. Talking of gay abandon, James had a manner with his friends that caused comments. He was very friendly, very touchy-feely, informal, and when he fell for someone, he fell hard, as a contemporary noted. The love the king showed was as amorously conveyed as if he had mistaken their sex and thought them ladies. Whether James was gay or not is moot, but probably. He also probably didn't go all the way, whether in the dashboard lights or not. He was always very affectionate, almost embarrassingly so at times, but hey, we're supposed to be in touch with our feelings, so let's see that as a positive thing. But he did fall for young men, and this became a problem. James was a sucker for favourites. As a young man, there was Esme Stewart, who became Earl of Lennox. When he came to England, he brought a young man called Robert Carr with him. And then, of course, most famously, he'd advanced the career of a handsome young lad called George Villiers, advance him all the way to the Duke of Buckingham. Favourites, of course, were always a problem. They created jealousies amongst courtiers. They subverted the normal processes. They could become very corrupt and by their close association with the king, their bad behaviour reflected on the reputation of that king. So, be careful of whom you choose if you're thinking of having a favourite, that's all I'm saying. One more thing before James rides into town. Religion. James was a good Protestant, raised far away from his mother's Catholicism. However, he was not really fully in tune with the very, very Calvinist Kirk of his home country. I mean... I don't think anyone could be more Calvin than Calvin, but Lord, Knox and Melvin and the Kirk tried, especially in southwest Scotland. But James was firm for some of the older traditions of the reformed Scottish Kirk, which the more extreme Calvinists in Scotland tried to pretend hadn't never existed. Bishops, for example. So, although a good Calvinist, what I'm saying, 
James brought with him a dislike of the extremes of the precise Puritans as much as Catholics, and his son would pick that up too. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okie dokie, let's have at 1603 then. Now, you might think that people would be a little wary of a foreigner taking over as king, but not a bit of it. Or not at first, anyway. On his way down south, people were smiling and waving, hey, and James smiled and waved right back, oh. He could not have been more pleased at his reception. However, whether he knew it or not, he was raising expectations. As he passed, People pressed petitions into his hands. The godly wanted more church reform. Smile and wave. The Catholics, they wanted relief from recusancy fines and freedom to practice. Smile and wave. Now I can see what you're thinking. This is a king from a resolutely Calvinist country and Catholics think they're onto a good thing? What are they like? Well, it's not as quite as balmy as it sounds. James has many admirable qualities, One of them was that he hated the idea of persecuting on the basis of religion. His reign compares favourably to Elizabeth's, with only 25 priests executed and for treason. I say only, and I know what you're thinking, only, but this is the early modern age, everyone. Religious persecution was the European shtick. Even James's belief in witchcraft seems that it was becoming increasingly sceptical even before he came to England. But the Catholic was very soon to be disillusioned. One of James's less impressive qualities was his desperate incontinence with money. Desperate. And recusancy fines meant money in pocket. Persecution pays. He who can't pray with me can't love me, he said shortly before confirming the next round of recusancy fines. The Catholic disappointment would be explosive. Nudge, nudge, wink, and without let or hindrance, wink. You know what we're talking about. In fact, church governance was one of the first questions to which James applied himself. In 1604, he convened a council to hear the pleas of the clergy, including those who wished for more reforms, to make the church more Puritan, and a group of those who wished for a return to greater ceremony, on the other hand. While the loudest voices came from the more extreme Calvinists, they were not the only voice. So let's talk about that just a bit, because it's going to come back time and again. The godly, as they were known, were looking for greater Protestant reforms. And the Scots, and some English, favoured an even more radical change, Presbyterianism. Presbyterians had looked very carefully through the Bible and they'd notice that there appeared to be no mention of bishops. So, bishops should go, obviously. 
And the church should be run by local elders, ministers and laity together in the community. On the far end of the other side were the followers of a very different doctrine espoused by one Jacobus Arminius. Arminius talked of the mystery of the sacraments, of the need for ceremony and decoration to celebrate that mystery, and he came dangerously close to the Catholic idea of grace, that by their actions people could earn their own salvation, not everything was predestined. So let us call these people mm, Arminians, because that's what they were called. This has absolutely nothing, could I just say, to do with the country Armenia or the people who live there, Armenians. Put that out of your mind. Big on, Armenia, Arminian, with an I in the middle, no ease. Now, on this Arminian versus Presbyterian versus Calvinist thing, I mean, I suspect that in every Christian church that ever existed, there have been pressure, disagreements, disputes, and at times a full and frank exchange of views. This, after all, is not trivial stuff. This is about your immortal soul. The clever people steered a line, a compromise that none hated so much they felt they had to leave the church. This was the triumph of the Elizabethan settlement, a flexibility and width that was in itself a form of religious toleration. And James was quite good at that although he'd get a bit more ranty about Puritans later in his reign, until 1620 at least, he maintained the balance of appointments to key church positions, bishops in the main. There was an Arminian contingent in there, but the Calvinist theology and practice, which had brought the Church of England to the equilibrium it had achieved by the end of the century, remained, and unity with it. The number of separatists, brownists or Anabaptists, as they were sneeringly called, were very few indeed. A contingent so small and so weedy you are quite safe to kick sand in their collective faces. That will change. Let me tell you, that will change. Anyway, now James fancied himself as a bit of an expert in theological matters, a bit like Henry VIII. And so he called together a collection of divines to make arguments about where the church was going and settle things once and for all. A group of radical Calvinists put the case for more Puritan reforms. One day they'd look back at this and wish for the good old days. The arguments went back and forth, to and fro, up and down, sideways and back, but James was unconvinced by the arguments and decided against them. Especially unconvinced by the argument of the Presbyterian element that bishops were not part of the early church, not in the Bible, and therefore were to be deleted. This is when James offered up his famous dictum, drummed into the furrowed brows of every schoolchild, no bishops, no king. Is this still the core fulcrum on which the English curriculum swivels, I wonder? And is there honey still for tea? It's important to unpick why, not why there should always be honey for tea, although there always should be honey for tea, but why James and monarchs in general loved bishops, loved them so much. Putting aside any complicated matters of theology and the Bible and all the rest of it, bishops were the mechanism by which monarchs could both control and adjust church doctrine and enforce discipline and moral behaviour in the church and the community. But bishops, and through them, every pulpit in the land was also far and away the most effective communication method by which kings could reach their subjects. To lose control of that 
would be like losing a leg on which the monarchy stood. Many Scots believe that the church and state should in fact be completely separate, that the king should have absolutely no say in religious matters. James and indeed his son Charles would rather stick pins in their eyes, eat their own livers, do all sorts of hideous acts of self-harm to avoid that. The conference did make a few tweaks. A few tweaks to Cranmer's glorious Book of Common Prayer, but one other major thing came from the 1604 conference which would lead to a cultural masterpiece. King James commissioned a new version of the Bible in English. Now clearly I can't cover that while galloping, but you might take yourself to the second half of episode 338. Three things though here about the Book of Books. Firstly, it is still William Tyndale's child. 82% of it was based on his words. Secondly, it is also a child of Old English. 90% of the language derives from Anglo-Saxon. And thirdly, little wrinkle, one of its earliest printings in 1611 was called the Wicked Bible because it had some critical typos, including the Sixth Commandment, which was rendered as Thou shalt commit adultery to her missus. Now, when a new monarch rides into town, everyone gathers together and it is traditional to perform the parrot sketch. Well, in fact, it's more traditional to hold a parliament. In fact, it is a requirement. The new kid on the block needs to hear his subjects' grievances so they can rule well in accordance with the community of the realm and all that sort of good thing. One of the issues at this parliament was Britain. James was the king of England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and he had a vision. Unus Rex, Unus Grex, and Una Lex. One king, one people, one law. Just like a business that's brought itself a vibrant, innovative, proud and growing little business. He thought, of course, that he should shove them all together, economies of scale, efficiencies, that sort of thing. I mean, of course, the normal inevitable result in business is that the thing that made those little businesses unique gets buried under the dead weight of bureaucracy and sameness and loses what made it special. But hey, things will be different this time. This is my one piece of business advice, by the way, but you ought to know that no one ever called me David Business Guru Crowther, so do treat it with care. Anyway, James put it to his new parliament that he should henceforth be known as the Black Vegetable, that he should henceforth be known as the King of Great Britain, and told them to come up with a plan to make one kingdom, please. Everyone hated it. Neither English nor Scots wanted to see what made them distinctive swept away. In addition, the Scots feared they would become just the problems of England and lose their personal connection with a dynasty they thought to have ruled unbroken for 300 years and to be the core of their identity. On the other hand, in England, there was already a lot of resentment at the number of Scots dominating key positions around the king's household and the money being shelled out to them. James essentially thought he'd be given free reign of the sweetie shop, a nation vastly bigger and more wealthy than back home. It's been estimated, for example, that your grandest Scottish magnate had an income similar to a member of the Yorkshire gentry. So, James set about eating all the sweeties and handing them out to his pals. He almost immediately made a gift to three of his Scottish lords of £44,000, six million quid in today's money. So Parliament said, mm, no. 
I mean, that's an abbreviation. Parliaments didn't get to say no to monarchs in those days, but they employed the tactics of the teenager, essentially. They moaned, whined, sulked, threw up a myriad of petty objections until they wore the grown-up down, robbed them of the will to live, and they gave up. Four things came out, though, of the initiative. The first flag of Great Britain is one of them. Then, a growing connection and convergence between the elites of England and Scotland that in the end, after a hundred years or so, will win the day for James's shades. The third thing I'd pick is an end to the violence of the Scottish borders, which had blighted the lives of inhabitants on both sides of it for hundreds of years. The Reavers had become a way of life, full of raid and counter-raid, clans and wardens on either side of the line, a local architecture you can still see in places, small stone bassel houses with heavy stone and titchy-tiny windows built for defence. James took to calling them the Middleshires, which speaks of his different mindset. A committee was set up, Law enforcement ensued, which could be pretty brutal, including, for example, the wholesale uprooting of the Armstrong clan, plonked down in central Ireland, where the locals gave them such a kicking they essentially drifted on or back. And then fourthly, of course, an idea, the idea of Great Britain, which would percolate away like a long-term coffee maker. James's relationships with his parliaments will be a little tricky, and the problem that will plague them appeared in 1604, money, which is, as you know, the root of all evil, i.e. the king spent too much of it, and there wasn't enough of it. But it would take a few years for that issue to, be, to become dominant, actually, and initially, at least, despite some grumbles, things in the kingdom seemed set fair, which was a triumph given how worried people had been about the death of good Queen Bess. People had expected chaos and violence, decay and destruction. And one of the first things that helped, actually, almost immediately in 1604, although quite a lot of people objected to it, but generally had to be a good thing, James put an end to the seemingly endless war with Spain. England at last was at peace. And it is another of James's attractive points that he seemed genuinely uninterested in war, which is most unusual. Europe groaned continually under its weight. So we're talking up good points for James. Black marks, though. Black marks are on the way. Never fear. Back to those Catholics, then. James had proved a big disappointment to them. He'd confirmed the recusancy fines. It ordered all Jesuits and Catholic priests to leave the country on pain of death, and on top of that, the peace with Spain was a kick in the guts. The Spanish had walked away from the cause with no mention of toleration. And a group of radically-minded Catholics, led by one Robert Catesby, decided they could not stand the prospect of yet another reign of all this. So, now I must remember the 5th of November gunpowder treason and plot. And if you want a longer rendition, you should head for the second half of episode 328. So, here was the plan. In November, Parliament would reconvene after the recess. And not only would the place be stuffed with Protestant MPs, the horrid things, but also the king and his sons would be there, the little tykes. So, here's a plan. Why not blow the lot of them to smithereens? All 600 of them. Then they'd get their hands on one of James's daughters, Elizabeth by name, pop her on the throne, bring her up a Catholic, and we'd all live happily ever after. And to be fair, the plan seemed to be going pretty well. They'd rented 
storage apartments underneath the House of Parliament. They managed to stuff it with vast quantities of gunpowder ready to blow on the big day. A few days before the balloon went up, or Parliament went up, a message was received by one of the MPs who then passed it to Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. As you tender your life, devise some excuse to shift of your attendance at this parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. This was an unpleasantly scary note, but also unpleasantly non-specific. The night before the big day, a search was carried out of the rooms under the Parliament, and they met a terribly nice chap called Guido Fawkes down there. Nothing to see there, but just some faggots of wood. Salisbury, though, was on it and not convinced. He sent them back down again, and this time they happened to notice that under the faggots of wood was a vast quantity of gunpowder. But the news hit the streets pretty much immediately. Catesby and the conspirators fled, and on the 8th of November they died in a hail of bullets charging the soldiers sent to get them. Most people at the time were thoroughly delighted that the institution that represented the Commonwealth of the Realm had not been blown up, and they lit bonfires and ate sausages, and that's what we still do every year. So, who says good cannot come from evil? Now then, I think I should leave you with the image of today's happy English folk gathering around bonfires, watching fireworks, eating, drinking and chatting while celebrating the survival of their parliament. In 1606, James had made a bright start. He'd brought peace, he'd resolved some conflicts, he'd managed the balance and harmony of the church, he'd commissioned one of the greatest works of English literature. Added to that, he was popular, basking in the goodwill that came from relief at the failure of the gunpowder plot. The new Sun King was shining on the sea of the English people, shining with all his might, and he was making the billows smooth and bright. But the waters will get choppier. And we will gallop through those choppy waters at the next episode of the History of England at a gallop. So, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Thanks very much for your comments. Do let me know what you think of this new idea, whether it's going to work for you or not. And next week, of course, we're back to the knitting and the core episodes. Thanks very much, everyone. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.